up, everybody, and welcome to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, and joining me as always is my doppelganger, Kangabanga, from down under, Mr. Brody Kane. Howdy, howdy, mother lickers. And wrapped in a blanket, Mr. Slick Nick. It's Sick Nick this week. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, A, buddy. So, today we got a doozy of an episode. But first, it's time for your slice of life. Brody, tell them the good news. Ooh, yes. So, had a very interesting day yesterday. Got an email there the other, well, yeah, I think it was earlier in the week. And it was basically a job to work on a TV series down this way in Kalgoorlie. So, it basically fell into my goddamn lap. So, I had the interview with him yesterday. All went well. And they're more than happy to have me on the production team with them. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a bit of a doozy. Uh, definitely an eye opener, considering I've only worked on short films. Um, so yeah, it was it was awesome yesterday. Actually, um, you know, they were actually building the um, actual uh, set fucking home. Sorry, yeah, the set pieces and that inside the building, and then they were going to use them as flat packs and take them out in the middle of butt fuck nowhere and uh, <laughs> set them all up. Now so, you're actually uh, doing uh, set coordination, correct? Pretty much, yep. yeah. So I'll be, um, yeah directing uh, people out of the frame that don't need to be there, cars, because it's going to be set in the 90s. So yeah, Checking for continuity yeah. and stuff. But pre- yeah, pretty much. So, yeah. Um, they, yeah, like I um, like I was telling you there the other night, um, they're pretty much saying to me, like, they're going to build these houses on, like, out in the desert. And if I wanted to stay with them and just make it my own to make it, give it that realistic approach, mm-hmm. yeah. It'd be, it'd be interesting, yeah. Basically, so people don't vandalize them as well, and you know, just make sure that they're um not fucked pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, fucking a. It's gonna be interesting, yeah. So, yeah, filming starts um October and it'll go to uh, December. Um, so and it's a paid gig, so I'm happy about that. Experience is experience, and congratulations, brother. Oh yeah, man. Thank very. Thank you very much. Yeah, much appreciated. Other than that, oh. yeah, yeah, Nick, how you been, mate? Yeah. <laughs> not too bad. Um, not doing a whole lot this week. Uh, I haven't really watched anything particularly new. Um, mostly just been working. Uh, ended up working from home today. Woke up with a pretty nasty head cold. So hopefully I don't sound like shit for this recording. <laughs> but there may just not be any getting around it. And that's different um, from any other time? You know, you are right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, uh, that's really about it. So I'm sitting here loading up on uh, ibuprofen, cough syrup, and cough drops. So hopefully uh, this afternoon will go better because I'm supposed to have plans tonight. So Sounds like a mumble um, wrap drink. <laughs> <laughs> some some super lean. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, what you been up to this week, TJ? Buying lots of movies. Uh, I got some Kino Lorbear films today. Uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway. And what was the other one? The high spot? From yeah, the Dennis hot Hopper. spot. The hot spot. The hot spot. Don Johnson, motherfucker. Yes. And uh, also got a Criterion film, uh, the David Lynch documentary thing about his uh, artwork. So that's coming. Super hyped for that. That was on sale. So I was like, ooh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but pushed out a lot of podcasts. Uh, Wrestling Ruined, episode 20, no, episode 18 is dropping tomorrow, featuring a mm-hmm. cameo from Missy Hyatt. 
uh, wrestling manager, the the queen of professional wrestling. Uh, she is awesome. Uh, check that out on projectlouder.net and anywhere else you consume audio-only content. But just doing a lot of uh, podcast production behind the scenes, uh, doing some work on our script, doing some pre-production on Brody and I short, just kind of getting things moving and keeping busy. But I'm excited to talk about this week's film, and that is Django from 1966. Django, the title of a film you'll never forget. Django. How many men you got left? You tongue-tied? Or don't want to tell me? <laughs> Too bad, Maria. Django, an audacious man of action, capable of a tender, hopeless love which could only last a day, but a day which was worth all eternity. I'm glad I made you feel like a real woman. violent film featuring a great new star Franco Nero and a great supporting cast and that is from director Sergio Corbucci who also did Ford Earth in 1954 The Great Silence in 1968 with the great Klaus Kimski I'm not doing this fuck him Pick another one. It's shit. Compañeros in 1970 with Franco Nero. Nightclub in 1989. Writers, Sergio Corbucci, Bruno Corbucci, Franco Rossetti, and Piero Vivarelli. Fernando Di Leo and Jose Gutierrez Masso is uncredited for writing credits as well. Jeffrey Copston did the English language script, also uncredited. And the script is based on Yojimbo by Akira Kurosawa, also uncredited. Nick will talk more about that later. Hmm. Cinematographer Enzo Barboni, who also did The Two Marshals in 1961. Texas Adios in 1966 that also featured Franco Nero. Django Preparacoffin in 1968. And Kemet in 1970. Music by Louis Bakalov, who also did These Phantoms in 1954. Sugar Colt in 1966. Shoot First, Die Later in 1974. And The Postman in 1994. Production design and costume design by Carlos Simi, who did Dollars for a Fast Gun in 1964. 1966, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in 1966, Kioma in 1976, and They Called Me Renegade in 1987. Producer Sergio Corbucci and Manola Bolanini. Co-producer Jose Gutierrez, Jose Gutierrez Masso, uncredited. Stunt coordinator Remo DeAngelis, who also played Ricardo in the film. Also worked on Fury of Achilles in 1962, Texas Adios in 1966, Let's Go and Kill Sartana in 1971, and Robot Jacks in 1989. Now, we searched high and low and could not find a budget for this film. Uh, don't know why. Starring Franco Nero as Django, who also was in The Fifth Court in 1971, Kioma in 1976, Die Hard 2 in 1990, and Django Unchained in 2012. Jose Badalo as General Hugo Rodriguez, who was also in The Siege in 1950, Ringo's Big Night in 1966, Captain Apache in 1971, 
and Blackjack in 1981. Loredana Nusiak as Maria, who also was in Colossus and the Amazon Queen in 1960, $7 to Kill in 1966, No Way Out in 1973, and Silent Action in 1975. Angel Alvarez as Nathaniel the Bartender, poor guy, who starred in Path Unknown in 1946, $3 of Lead in 1964, Requiem for a Gringo in 1968, and Soldiers in 1978. Gino Pernese as Brother Jonathan, who was in The Attic in 1963, Texas Adios in 1966, Soldier of Fortune in 1976, and Secret Scandal in 1990. Simon Arguanda as Miguel, who was in Shades of Zorro in 1962, Minnesota Clay in 1964, Santo vs. Dr. Death in 1973, and Poachers in 1975. And lastly, Giovanni Ivan Scrutagila as the clan member who was in R- Ranch of the Ruthless in 1965. Don't wait! Django, shoot! In 1967. Once Upon a Time in the West in 1968. And Wanted Ringo in 1970. Brody? Squelching across a godforsaken ghost town near the US slash Mexican border. Always dragging a heavy coffin, blue-eyed Django, a drifting mud-spattered former Union soldier, saves runaway Maria from certain death. But the wooden container with the mysterious content has already caught the attention of the racist ex-Confederate officer, Major Jackson, and his gang of white supremacists, and before long, things get nasty. Now the guns have the final say, and as if that weren't enough, Jackson's sworn enemy General Hugo Rodriguez and his feared revolutionaries enter the picture wanting to have a piece of the action. Can Django, the stranger with the lightning-fast right hand, take on two armies of murderous henchmen and live to tell the tale? Django! Django! <laughs> Awards! Didn't find any. Unfortunately. No. Should've but boys, something. you know what we can do? Let's get physical. Okay, and today we have the Arrow release that was dropped on August 3rd, 2021, and it is the 4K release. Features a restoration of Django from a 4K scan of the original camera negative by Arrow Films. Uncompressed mono 1.0 PCM audio, original English and Italian soundtracks, and English subtitles for the Italian soundtrack. Optional English subtitles for the deaf, deaf and hard of hearing. Audio commentary by film critic and historian Stephen Prince. Django Never Dies, an interview with Franco Nero. Cannibal of the Wild West, an interview with Ruggiero Diodato. Sergio, my husband, in an interview with Sergio Corbucci's wife, Nori Cabucci. That's my... Life Part 1, an archival interview with co-writer Franco Rossetti, a rock and roll scriptwriter, an archival interview with co-writer Piero Vivarelli, a punch in the face, an interview with stuntman Gilberto Gimberti, discovering Django, an appreciation by Spaghetti Western scholar Austin Fisher, an introduction to Django by Alex Cox, an archival featurette with the acclaimed director, gallery of original promotional images from the Mike Siegel archive, original trailers, and of course, a reversible sleeve featuring newly commissioned artwork by Sean Phillips. And this release is region A if you have the Blu-ray, but region free if you have the 4K. Boys, Mm -hmm. additional information. Yes, so the majority of my uh, Franco Nero notes... um, and the discussing and making of Django was uh, a little video of the making of, uh, which can be seen on YouTube or over at revoc.com. I do believe that's what it says. But um, he was quoted. (laughs) (laughs) Revic? (laughs) Sorry, Revic. Fuck. (laughs) In saying that, 
he uh, Nero was quoted by saying, "I was chosen through a photo." Director Sergio Cabucci, the two producers Manolo Bolognini and Frank Cellini knew which actor to choose. Mark Dame, the American. Another Peter Martel, who was Spanish, and the third was me. Kabuchi promised the role to Mark Damon, but Mark was busy doing another movie, and Kabuchi didn't want to wait for him. Then producer Manolo. Then producer Manolo Bolognini said, listen, guys, you know what we do. We have the three photos of the three actors. We go to the distributor and we will ask him which one he likes best. So he went there and full view Fritz liked. You good? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm just having a bit of a fucking stroke moment. (laughs) Then producer Manolo... Then producer Manolo Bolognini said, listen, guys, you know what we do? We have the three photos of the three actors. We go to the distributor and we will ask him which one he likes best. So he went there and full view Fritz looked at the three photos and his fingers were on my face. And uh, I will go a little bit more into Mark Damon's original selection a little bit later as well. Um, Just kind of why they picked him, what else he was working on around that time. Um, But what I've got, uh, so Django was originally intended to rival the success of director Sergio Leone. Uh, His film A Fistful of Dollars had just been released about two years prior to Django. Uh, Corbucci referenced the same source material, as we said in the opening notes earlier. Um, The both movies uh, were intended to be loose adaptations of the Akira Kurosawa film Yojimbo, a 1961 samurai film that did end up forming the basis of both stories and, like TJ said, uh, went uncredited for it, unfortunately. Can I mention the connection to a season one pick? Yes. Yes. So, apparently... During the production of Ringo in his Golden Pistol, Sergio Corbucci was approached by Manolo Bolognini, an ambitious producer at the time, who had previously worked on the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And he wanted to direct a spaghetti western to recruit the losses uh, from a film he just did called The Possessed. So this film was made after The Possessed failed. Ooh. I still don't understand how that movie failed like it did. <laughs> It's not a bad movie at all. That was a season one pick, right? Um, Uh, Yeah, I believe so. It was was like near the end of season one, I think. And I, uh, I don't know if you guys have it in your notes, but the uh, the final act of this film with Django in the uh, graveyard uh, with the with the uh, broken hands, uh, Hmm. it's it's kind of taken from uh, Corbucci's previous film, Minnesota Clay from '64, uh, wherever the uh, protagonist is blind and has to overcome his disability. Ooh, no, no, it's not in here. No, it's here. Okay, Hmm. just want to mention that. Get that one out there. Fair uh, fact. Indeed. So, Franco Nero on getting the part. When they offered me the role of Django, I didn't want to do it, to be honest. I said, I'm an actor. I want to play Shakespeare. I want to do great movies. What do you mean a Western here in Italy? So, my agent said to me, Franco, you have nothing to lose. You better do it. And realistically, he convinced me to do it. Fucking A. <laughs> So, uh, at the time of its release, uh, Django was considered to be, I actually didn't know this one before, um, to be highly controversial uh, due to the large-scale gunfights, uh, large amount of on-screen deaths, uh, the torture scene in which he gets his hands smashed a bit. Uh, It was touted as the most violent movie to be released at the time, uh, and was released through most of Europe, as Brody will clarify later, under an 18 certificate, which is the equivalent to the American adults-only rating, though the film did not receive a rating in the U.S., uh, they refused to rate it. Uh, it would not be lowered to a 15 certificate until nearly 50 years later in 2004. I, I can't imagine for the first half of the 2000s, they were still like, nope, no, you can't. No, 
<laughs> you can't watch this 50 year old western with no real blood other than his hands i, I no. do have to say that the ear and the mouth is pretty brutal making that one was pretty yeah. brutal yeah. so franco nero discusses him and kabuchi's relationship on set so Sergio was a man full of humor, and he liked to do jokes all the time. I remember in the opening scene of the film, I was carrying a coffin in the mud. It was raining heavily, and he said to me, you walk all the way until you disappear out of our sight, and then wait for us to call you back. I remember that. I walked in the mud. It was very tough to carry a bit of the coffin. I disappeared, and I was waiting for their call. Their call never arrived. Sergio left with all of the crew, and they left me there by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so during the time of filming, uh, there is a large volume of films being produced in the same area of Italy that Django is being made in right around Rome. Uh, it took uh, pretty much a huge chunk out of the workforce uh, for film extras, uh, leaving only the quote unquote ugly actors left who did not look menacing enough. Uh, Corbucci hired a bunch of them to portray the major's men and then had them all cover their faces with the distinctive red scarves and masks. So <laughs> prior to recording, I I had a conversation with Nick and I was like there, at some point Quentin Tarantino was doing one of his watch alongs of Django and was like I wonder how hard it is to see in those sacks and then that scene yeah. was born <laughs> I, I, thought, uh, I honestly thought the same thing for Django Unchained yeah I was like you can't tell me that's not a reference yeah <laughs> oh absolutely I love that it's the only part that Jonah Hill is into and the cool he thing got is, Jonah Hill for that just <laughs> and we might be Sorry. discussing things a little bit too early but after watching this film and then watching Unchained like that that scene with Franco in it it just hits so much harder yeah yeah <laughs> Franco Nero discusses Sergio Leone on set so a fistful of dollars had just opened in Italy uh, when we were shooting Django and Kabuchi invited Leone on set Leone came to the set and to see me actually he was looking at me and Kabuchi said this guy is going to disturb your Europe star Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Good man. Uh, so, uh, although Django was Franco Nero's eighth film at the time, uh, he was still fairly new to acting, uh, having only started about four years prior. 1962, I think, was the first credit I found for him. Uh, most of his earlier credits having been smaller bit parts. Uh, his highest billing was actually being second on The Hired Killer earlier that same year. Uh, Nero was actually pretty young for the time, too. Same age as me. He was only 25 during the shooting of Django the crew had to apply makeup to make him look older before filming for pretty much every single scene. So he is heavily in makeup for the whole movie. <laughs> I also do want to mention that uh, he was set to appear in Django Prepare Your Coffin and he chose to do the production of Camelot instead and that's why a different actor appears in the film Django Prepare a Coffin. So we would have got a sequel a lot sooner if it wasn't for that. Uh, he said that in an interview. I can't remember, but it was on a talk show. Okay. I think I actually saw that as well. Can't remember, though. <laughs> I, I did a lot of the research today, and I'm still pretty loopy from all the medicine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's next? So, Franco Nero on shooting Django. We started to shoot Django in December in 1965. We shot a few days, and then we stopped 
the movie because there was no script. It was just the idea of the film, which was typical of Italian movies at the time. So Cabucci asked a favour to his brother, Bruno Cabucci, and he said, Bruno, you must write something for us. So we interrupted the movie. We didn't have enough money. And in the meantime, Bruno was rewriting scenes of the film. In the meantime, the producer managed to do a co-production with Spain. So after Christmas, we went to Spain. We shot a few scenes outside. We then flew back to Rome and we finished the movie. <laughs> Fucking A. Okay. What casual that is. So we just go to Spain, you know, shot a few scenes, flew to Rome. <laughs> Whatever it takes uh, to get the movie made. Pretty fucking much. Um, so yeah, uh, like I said earlier oh, with the Mark Damon. Um, so originally before choosing Franco to play the part of Django, Carbucci had considered casting Mark Damon for that role instead. Uh, Damon, Damon having already been an established actor for about a decade or so at the time, I think he started early fifties, uh, he appeared in such films as Edgar Allan Poe's house of Usher in 1960. And actually the original beauty and the beast in 1962, the live action, not the Disney animated one. Um, after Damon lost the part to ring, he went on to star in a different Western that year. TJ's favorite movie in the world, Ringo and his Golden Pistol. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a bad name for a fucking porno film. <laughs> it's like the Dirk Dingler story. I'll just say. I'll just say. Arrow has a double pack featuring both Ringo films, I believe. Oh. So, yeah, Franco Nero on the production design of the film. So... They built the town outside of Rome in a studio called Elias. So every day there were trucks bringing mud and water, <laughs> and it was really, it, it really is basically the character of the film. This is what the director wanted. So, of course, it was all full on set. But you know, we just basically had to accept it in the end. Uh, so, Franco Nero describing his favorite scene from the movie. Uh, he says, My favorite scene that I would say is at the beginning uh, when there is a girl that is beaten by the bad guys. And of course, Django rides up, kills all the bad guys. And when he says to the girl, What's your name? She says, My name is Maria. What's yours? And I say, My name is Django. <laughs> <laughs> so in an interview with uh, Sirius FX, which is a radio station, um, in 2012, um, I think Tarantino was basically uh, promoting his film Django at the time, and he goes on to discuss the history of Django from 1966. And Tarantino was quoted by saying, in the case of Django, this movie became such a sensation. It took spaghetti westerns to a different place, a much more violent place, a much rougher, more brutal, and even more surreal type of west. And just as just as an example of how violent the movie was at the time, it was banned in England up until the 90s. You could not show Django in England up until the 90s. In fact, one of the only ways to ever see Django in England is in the Jimmy Cliff movie, The Harder They Come. Jimmy Cliff goes to a theatre and watches Django, and you see him in the theatre watching Django, and you see the villain, uh, Django, on the screen, and they they play a whole mirror aspect of Jimmy Cliff as Django. He's the outlaw uh, on the run pretty much. Uh, so Tarantino went on to explain more about the title character. Uh, Django was so popular that about 40 films exist that are basically non-related rip-off sequels to the original Django. Rarely do they actually try to make it the same character. Only a couple of them have ever tried to do that. It's just a character named Django. Sometimes the movies don't even have a character named Django in it. They just put Django in the title because they thought that's what spaghetti Western people would want to see. Not to mention any time a Frank Nero movie, uh, who was the star of Director 
director Sergio Corbucci's Django, in particular, played in Germany. Uh, it was always called Django something. Didn't matter what it was. If he's doing a modern day cop film in the 70s, it was Django the cop. If he's doing a movie where he plays a shark hunter, it would be called Django and the shark. Django in Vietnam. There were all these complete ripoff, unrelated sequels to Django, and I am proud to say that my film, Django Unchained, can join the long line of unrelated Django ripoffs. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he actually considered it to be a Django ripoff. That, Unchained might be one of my favorite Tarantino movies. It's definitely up there. Oh, fucking fantastic. Movie's so fucking good, man. <laughs> okay, boys. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Okay, favorite performance of the film. Well, it's going to have to go to our fucking lead, Franco Nero. Yeah, homeboy. He I mean, it in this fucking yeah. film. Yeah, he fucking does. Homeboy, He's such a it. badass. But I just couldn't take my eyes off the screen. You know, every time he showed up, um, his eyes. I think yes, baby blue, yep. baby blue, getting everybody moist up in this bitch. But um, you know, I think it's mainly due to his witty. Yeah, he's got this witty humor, and mm -hmm. it's his actions that leave us guess, guessing what he's going to do. And next. the dub doesn't That's, bother us. No, actually, mm -hmm. no. The beautiful imagery of this film definitely takes us on a journey. The framing, put that shit aside. Holy fuck! Fan the framing and blocking is incredible, <laughs> especially yeah. the the more action oriented scenes. Just having so much going on at once is just insane. The four, you handsome son of a gun. Yeah, I'd have to say Nero as well, uh, with only a uh, mention of Maria. I Maria. think I think she did pretty good uh, in a couple scenes. Yeah, the interactions between her and Django were pretty darn good. Uh, Nathaniel, the bartender, he just kind of felt bad for him. It's <laughs> white. <Poor laughs> <laughs> that poor son of a sweat. bitch. <laughs> I will say the uh, the actor who played um, Major Jackson was really good at making you hate him. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was really, really good. Yeah, he did very well. Um, even the even the uh, the Mexican general um, Hugo Hugo. Yeah, he he was not bad either. He's a douche. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna <laughs> say this again. I know I've already talked to you guys about it, but Django is like a fucking antihero in this film. You love him, he does good, but then he, when he starts doing bad, you fucking hate him because he just brings nothing but death in his way. I, I, that's how I seen it. I was like, it all comes full circle because he learns his lesson at the end. You're like, you know, he did all that, and he's just like, yeah. You lose, I promise you to never shoot beer bottles again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like he really took that motherfucker for a ride. Just walks into his bar. We've got no rooms. Fuck it. Here's some money. You've got one. And then he's like, pulls out his gun. I'm going to shoot your fucking bar up to put on a show for these guys. And then you're going to fucking die just because I've met you. Well, it's just, <laughs> he's bringing nothing but death. It's just say he's not. But I think he warns the hero, people but he's that. not the You hero. know what I mean? Like with the girl, he tries to warn her. He's like, I suppose you yeah. will die. People die around me. It's just kind of a thing that happens. Like, if you come with me, you will die literally five seconds later. Bang, dead. Oh, some of the dialogue in the graveyard. Between Nathaniel and Django, yeah, oh, that yeah. was actually a fucking great scene. When he's when he's like, it's it's better to be above ground doing this than to be them doing nothing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's yep. awesome. 
Check. I was like, don't worry. <laughs> You'll be down there soon. <laughs> Do you agree with us, Nick? Do you, are you going to say Franco? I will say Franco as okay. well, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, set piece. The town. Oh, so. Sounds really good. So cool. I love the mud and, that, and knowing that it's fake mud, that they created that. That's the tits. Just love it. it all in. Yeah. I like that uh, quickstand pit, too, from the yes. opening and closing Oat of the mail. movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <Oatmeal laughs> I, I didn't really. I actually had something different. I had the graveyard. Oh, it is pretty creepy. Okay. Very gothic. Yeah, just that atmospheric. It, it, but uh, it's the beautiful landscape that surrounds it. It's, mm-hmm. That's what does it for me. I think it just yeah that that, that final still shot of that graveyard. Oh, oh, yes. Uh, just knowing, <laughs> just knowing that when Franco turns around, the whole cast and crew is disassembled and left in there. <laughs> uh, I actually had something different. I had the uh, the fort in Mexico, the fort that they assaulted. Okay, fuck it. I would say that I that just those like fort assaults from those Western movies are always my favorite. Yeah, this one's part. next level because has a machine gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's uh, there's another one later. It may actually be one of the Django ripoffs. I just remember uh, seeing it on the tv in my grandparents living room as a kid but there is one i think later where there is another and i think it is in mexico as well it's another ford assault with a lewis gun it's basically the same scene except he's carrying it and i as soon as i saw this on this one i'm like instantly thought of that i'm like they they really like carrying lewis guns into forts and westerns don't they (laughs) i mean i'm not complaining about it it's fun as hell to watch yeah i love the town and then whenever he has to escape the town and just like have to like go up on the scaffolding and shit and then go down into the fucking chimneys and stuff it's just so cool i i I just love how like they really put effort and thought into the the production design of this and the fact that the guy who also did the production design also did all did all the costumes super fucking cool fucking oath oh yeah i kind of feel like i kind of wish they had have explored that town a little bit more. right we only really got the the center of it and the fucking bar or the brothel whatever the fuck it is i guess the reason they probably didn't was considering uh that the set in is it elias or elios because i think i saw it spelled both ways when i was doing the research for it too but uh yeah i mean it it was so old it was just like the set was deteriorating so they had to hide a whole bunch of it so you couldn't see that it was basically just falling apart it's probably just why they didn't get more in depth with it yeah we're just happy we got to see what we got you know yeah it, it looks cool as hell yeah I mean, maybe it deteriorating definitely led a fucking uh, hand in how cool it looked. Uh, the 4K restoration makes this film look absolutely premium. Uh, the grain's still present, but it's definitely smooth to a point of cinematic perfection. And the coloring on this transfer is spot on and everything that you wanted it to be. So it definitely highlights some of these really unique set pieces. Boys, favorite scene or shot? Uh, I went for the whole ending scene, the graveyard shootout. The reason why I like it, because of the... The, the location that it's yes. set in. Obviously, I'm always a sucker for a good graveyard scene, but it's the fact that the stakes of like a re- like a really high at that stage yeah. where Django has two broken hands trying to side up his gun to take out all this guy and all his men. Um, it's just that atmosphere and tension of the scene, I think, that really brings it home for me. And the final payoff after he shoots the guy and the music kicks in, it's like, that's fucking badass. And- <sighs> You know, a bit, but also the cinematography, the way it's shot, I think that's another that's another bonus for me. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, I don't know. There's, it's just got that really, really um, great atmosphere about it. Like I said, it's just badass when he just strolls off with two broken hands, taking out fucking people with his gun, and for the fact that the way he had to use his gun through the um the actual grave. 
Like mm-hmm. it, was, it was on the marker, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. he had to flip Set. it upside yeah. down with his mouth, and then he had to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had it sitting, because uh, whenever he walks off, the gun is still resting, like, laid in the, uh, in the grave marker. Yep. Yeah. It's it's, so it just cool. really captures that realism, and then you think after the film ends, it's like, well, how the fuck does he mend his hands back together, you know? Like, then you want the next film to explain- it doesn't. Some of the ending. Well, fuck, that sucks. <laughs> it begins with him and this and his wife in like this fucking uh, covered wagon sidebar. By the way, uh, this is prepare your coffin uh, for those of you mm. just tuning in now for whatever fucking reason. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so him and his wife are like in this covered wagon and this group of bandits like fucking kill her and then they think they kill him and then they go away and then he fucking like is actually alive so he goes and like goes into hiding and pretends to be this executioner in this town and then he takes all these people that are set to be killed and actually fakes their deaths by putting them in these fake harnesses and then takes his ghost town like out outside of town and puts all these people in and creates an army and then takes all those people that were falsely accused of things and then takes them back who are ghosts to scare those people and be like, Oh my God, you're supposed to be dead. <laughs> and then he uses that as a fucking army to attack the people. And of course he has his fucking machine gun again and it's t- played by Terrence Hill and everything, but like, it's still a decent film, but yeah. It has nothing to, there's nothing no mention of hands. <laughs> Interesting premise. <laughs> yeah. The story's pretty brutal and I I love the whole fake hanging thing to like kind of organize your own little private army. It's pretty That's badass. That's kind of cool. And then the whole scenes of them like, "Wait, you're supposed to be dead. Scare them, boys." <laughs> <laughs> Get him. Scare him. Django and his ghost army. Yeah, essentially. Sounds like a Scooby-Doo episode. Yeah. So goddamn creeper. Back to the OG Django. My favorite scene and shot are one and the same. So the scene where we first see the machine gun and the reveal of what's in the coffin, uh, the, the zoom from the wide shot and then the zoom in on the log. That's my favorite shot easily. And then I would say my whole favorite scene is just where he's like, hey, bring all your men next time. That way you know you'll win. And these fuckers show up red hooded and all fucking horses. And Django's like, closer, closer. And then pulls this motherfucker out and just lays out an entire fucking army of 48 dudes. And yeah, it is just absolutely intense. I love the editing in that uh, fucking scene. It really uh, creates... It really makes it effective. It really makes that scene effective. It really in- increases the intensity and the uh, the violence is just off the charts. Love it. And also, you have to mention uh, that the belt never moves once when he fires it. No. It stays, <laughs> it stays dead in the middle yep. and never moves. <laughs> Django. Django. Nick. <laughs> so um, I'll just I'll do shot first uh, real quick. It's it's definitely the uh the final shot of the pan- the pan- ah, blah, blah, blah. the zoom in uh of the bloodied revolver still stuck into the uh yeah. the grave marker that's it's definitely it's just such a cool shot um framed super well you have django walking off in the background and everything after everything you've just seen it just makes it so much more cathartic and cool um scene i'm gonna have to go with the first machine gun scene where you finally find out what's in the coffin he's been dragging around uh when he's hunkered down behind the log in the middle of town and just in front of god and everybody just lays out the whole army that the major brought and so the town's just kind of like well 
don't fuck with him uh, <laughs> is the lesson I'm taking away from this. Um, it's, I would say it, it's a really cool payoff, um, especially consider it up till this point. You have no idea what's in the coffin. Um, he makes that wise crack to I think it's Maria earlier when she asks you know, what's in the coffin is there a body in there and he goes yeah his name is Django <laughs> only to bring it out and he's like oh by the way Django is my Lewis gun <laughs> in 1866 or whatever that thing had to be like a nuke to them I don't know it, it's just a really cool scene um, I really like the sort of the payoff to it and then just after that just knowing he's been lugging around a machine gun the entire time it's just fun it's really cool Absolutely. Okay, hmm. favorite effect or death, Brody? A Gatling gun massacre scene. Okay. Yeah, I know it's very basic, but, you know, but I just love the fact that the whole time he's just been carrying around this fucking Gatling gun in a fucking coffin, and then to unleash it on a bunch of masked fucking cowboys, you know, I, I love that. I mean, it was kind of a thing where I was trying to think maybe I should choose it for favorite scene mm-hmm. or favorite effect, but there was no really... <sighs> Huge stand standouts for me for the deaths. I mean, everyone basically got shot in this film. Um, although there was that ear scene that we were talking about before. Yes. So I, yeah. I totally, I totally forgot that. I'll just give that a mention. But yeah, he was the um, me, it was a Gatling gun massacre. He was the, the preacher, wasn't he? Fucking rat is what he is. Yeah, he was true. Shit. Yeah, it was, was the guy that kept coming in and was like fucking looking around and shit. Yeah, it, it was the one that um, <clears throat> I think she was like, he's a racist. That ah, like doesn't matter. He got something. his ear cut off, and I, that will just go into my favorite th- uh, death is getting his fucking ear cut off, being forced to eat it, forced to walk away, and then shot in the fucking back, and then everybody's laughing as he's dying. That yep. is brutal, and that is only something Sergio Corbucci can bring you because fuck. Oh, so yeah. fucking rad. It makes you cringe. Yeah. I wasn't sure they were actually going to shoot him at first. So he's like, hey, gringo. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's over for him. <laughs> yeah, I think I think mine was going to have to be the other uh, preacher, too, for sure. It's it's just so brutal. <laughs> Plus, like Brody said, everyone else just gets shot. Everyone else just grabs their chest and falls over. So, yeah. Thoughts on story. So we've had discussions already where Brody thinks that some of the things were unjust. Uh uh, and that's completely understandable. But I I feel at times there's a fair trade between Hugo and uh, Mr. Django only because he saves his life on multiple occasions. And then whenever he does yes. try to leave, Hugo's like, no, you're not taking your gold. I'm going to go to Mexico and then I'll give you hat. I'll give you double. And he's like, no, I want to leave now because I don't think you're going to give me the gold. And he's like, no, you're not going. So Django's like, if you're not going to fucking let me, then I'm just going to take all your gold and say, fuck you. <sighs> Now, I can see where Brody'd be like, yeah, fuck that guy. But I also think that Hugo kind of brought it on to himself for being a douche canoe. Yeah, he did. He absolutely they did. As bad as each other. <laughs> yeah, that's both true. As bad as each, on different levels, I will say. Two egos <laughs> clashing at that sense of there's gold involved. And I do, I, 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 it's relatable. I mean, it's a fucking everyday situation thing. This is the way they dealt with shit back then. So it does capture that realism of a scene between the two. I think that I look I like I said, anti-hero. Django is an anti-hero. I fucking mm-hmm. love anti-heroes more than just the villain or the hero. Cause it's got that dynamic of realism. We've all got that in us. You know, like it's but the 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 story overall, it's well crafted considering it was a script like uh was it a page a day of the mm-hmm. script? And everybody I wrote it. They, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So to actually keep that character development going, 
with a fucking page a day of a script. That's insanely a hard thing to do. And like you said, everyone writing it, too many chefs in the cook uh, in the kitchen. They say that now. This can I really? Can I comment on one scene that maybe I think is just fucked, and it could uh, yes. probably be better uh, when they fuck right before they fuck that dialogue swap where it's, it's kind of misogynist where she's like you saved me and when you saved me you made me feel like a woman a woman for the very first time and then, oh yeah and then uh Django's like oh i made you feel like a woman i'm gonna fuck you then so <laughs> it's just like yeah like come 1960s, on 1960s yeah. misogynist what are you talking about <laughs> you know we're talking about the story let's talk about the plainful obvious bit there yeah, no, that's yes. fair. Yeah. I, I kind of had a similar uh, reaction to watching that scene. But I think yeah. that really, like, I think everybody everybody else that's like a piece of shit gets their own, like, gets their comeuppance in this film. Nobody gets out of this clean. No, no. Nobody. Not, especially not the uh, innocent saloon owner. <laughs> Django definitely ended up worse than he fucking started. And that's only because of his own doing, though. Two broken hands, the gold drops into a fucking pit of quicksand so he's he's out his money he's just killed a bunch of people and he's gravely injured and just walking off into a desert and we don't know if that like, girl's gonna survive she's shot that is true yeah mm, fuck mm. i didn't even think of that mm. yeah nobody wins this is a movie where no one wins <laughs> every single person sequel. she she runs the saloon that would be cool Django comes back to the saloon and she's running the show now yeah that would be pretty cool. So, impact and takeaways. We must say that this definitely influenced any action film that came after it. Uh, look at John Rambo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does have that very um, first blood mm -hmm. type quality to it. Or I guess first blood has a very Django type quality to it. Um, Just like the ultraviolence, yeah, I mean, the, the way the characters approached, uh, the way he interacts with women. Definitely you can see where where it would lead to some of the uh, action stars of the 70s and 80s. Uh, I mean, Nero himself becomes kind of the Italian action star doing Plitzioteschi films, doing Jally films, and any other fucking film he could possibly get his hands on over there. Uh, he has quite the filmography. Uh, I think, that, I mean, within a genre, one could say he uh, he started himself. Uh, definitely cool yep. shit here. Uh, yeah, what do you guys think? You basically hit the nail on the head. He's pretty yeah. much the OG granddaddy of all spaghetti Western films. And yeah, like you said, he inspired many more to come over the years. Um, I mean, you got to look at like, obviously Tarantino actually doing Django Unchained. Yep. I'll just say that. Um, and to not only do that, I actually have Nero cameo in it as Django. That was fucking a beautiful little scene between the two. Um you know, yeah, it's just if you if you really want to make a great independent Western film, I think this is the film to go back and watch and just learn from. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, trying to say, I mean, it definitely had an impact considering there's however many hundreds of of ripoff Django movies films. that were trying to. I mean, yeah, just just the fact that it was so sought after that movies that had absolutely fucking nothing in common with it at all would just use the name just to be associated with it so that people would watch it mm -hmm. definitely shows how much of an impact it had on just sort of the film it created its uh, own little community genre. at the time yeah the, i mean yeah <laughs> like this basically created modern westerns as we know them um i would definitely say you know neo westerns things well, like the django like genre <laughs> yeah the django genre <laughs> 
And I say, and it definitely influenced things like, like neo westerns. Yeah. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood, I think takes a few, you know, Any, uh, bits and pieces from it. Like Breaking Bad is inspired by Corbucci work, and I think <clears throat> oh, yeah. that that's where this film really stands out is the film that why it's so different is Sergio Corbucci takes such a different and more grounded approaches to his films. I think that he has more of this gritty and gross things that other people don't necessarily do. And I think that that's what makes him stand out with the ultra violence, with the blood, with the gore, applying those things to these awesome stories, these very unique stories, putting these, what do you want to say? These really capable actors in these scenarios and just letting them shine. I think that that coupled with the composition and the framing that they have with these amazing cinematographers, it's, and that's why this film stands the test of time and why Quentin Tarantino references it and fucking uses it to, in, in his work, you know, some of the stuff that he saw in this, uh, we talked about how he talks about it in the interviews there earlier with our additional information. It, it's clearly not just impacted him, but other filmmakers. And it's, 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 it's fantastic. I'd okay. I'd say Tarantino, sorry, I'd love to see Tarantino for his final film, make a uh, spaghetti Western. So then he's got his trilogy. Yep. You got Unchained, Hateful Eight, and then whatever it may be. I just hope he keeps doing stuff after he's done with the movies. I was talking to my uncle about this. <clears throat> Imagine him uh, making a comic book. Well, or a he TV runs show or the New Beverly done. Cinema in Hollywood, yes. oh. so, and he does the programming there. He's done that since 2018. Oh, so right, yeah, damn. Okay, uh, you actually see the cinema in its previous form. In which he made a facade in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I told Brody about this. Uh, whenever yeah. there's a scene, whenever they're walking past an old theater, and that's actually the new Bev, but with the the facade from that time period on front of. Oh, him. yes. Oh, that's cool. Okay. And, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And whenever he bought <laughs> the uh, theater, he only allows 32 millimeter prints or 16 millimeter prints there, and it's always a double feature programming. Fuck yes. No okay. Matter. Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, that's how I saw um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the first time was a uh, 16 millimeter screaming uh, at the Alamo, and it was oh. <laughs> they did. Uh, they did Hateful Eight uh, 70. What is it? What's the what's 70 the, mil? 70 mil. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. The man likes film. Got to say that, and he said that was one of the best. That had the intermission too. Had. Yes, because that movie's long as fuck. <laughs> I think the place they had the intermission too is right after the uh, Samuel Jackson character kills all those folks. Yep, and then they when... have that fucking intermission, and so you're like <laughs> just left with that. You're like, what the Channing fuck? Channing Tatum is in the movie for all of 30 <laughs> seconds just so we can get his head blown off. <laughs> Channing Tate, yum. Okay, boys. So let's rate this. Mud-covered, coffin-dragging strangers out of five. Slick Nick or Sick Nick on this episode. Mm -hmm. Give us the score. Uh, I'm going to go with four. Even four. Ooh, daddy. Brody? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the same. Four. Okay, that is a LCE score of four. Mud-covered, coffin-dragging strangers out of five for Django 1966. <laughs> Fucking A. That was another good one, boys. I am so happy we're able to watch a spaghetti oh, yeah. Western film, and especially one of the better ones with Django. I hope that we can do more in future seasons. I definitely want to uh, talk about Kioma in a future season with you guys. I think you will appreciate it, especially after watching this and appreciating Nero's performance. He only turns it up even more in that film with the drama, so fucking a yeah boys what's your uh thoughts and opinions on uh spaghetti westerns and uh covering them i love them oh yeah i've always had a thing for spaghetti westerns um yeah i just love i love the whole aesthetic of it it's it, it feels like an american-made production but 
it kind of baffles you. Like it just goes to show that you can make anything like mm-hmm. and make it look really fucking great off a fucking, you know, like budget. whatever budget. Yeah. 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 Like, so no, I, I, I enjoy it. It's, it's really a thinking man's film. It's creative. Well, it's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd have to agree with, uh, Brody on that one. Um, it does, it does feel like an American production. It feels like, a much higher production than it uh that it probably actually was <laughs> but yeah no i mean I, I love spaghetti westerns i used to not like westerns as a kid uh because as i as i explained last night i had a grandpa who was a bit of an ass who just liked to watch them all the time and so i just associated with him i was like yep nope they're probably all crap and then got more and more into them after Django unchained came out hateful eight uh my nerd ass playing an absolute ton of red dead uh, <laughs> i just i got more into the time period started liking the movies a lot more now i love them so I'm I hardcore one that actually, Oh, sorry. You go on TJ. I'm hardcore into Italian cinema. So this, this kind of is a part of it. And, uh, I, I'd say I'd probably veer more into the Jallo, of course, uh, genre of the time period, but I do every once in a while, we'll, we'll, we'll fuck with a, a Western, uh, anything Franco Nero I'll mess with anything Kinski I'll mess with. So that definitely this, yeah. this one stands out. Another one that I really like is, uh, in God said to Kane, which has Kinski in it, and it's kind of similar to High Plains Drifter. But uh, hmm. Kinski plays one of his most restrained roles I've ever seen him play. He do- he doesn't go off the handle once, and it's it's truly oh. remarkable in in the fact that he doesn't. Uh... <laughs> I was gonna say, I'd be like, on this set. Uh, be like watching a movie in which Joe Pesci doesn't yell at anybody, right? Yeah, <laughs> that movie's pretty badass. Yeah. Brody? High Plains Drifter, man. Fuck. That was probably the film that got me onto Westerns. Um, damn, I love that film so much. I really want to cover that. I seen it. Yeah, both have both High Plains Drifter and In God Say Decane have intense gothic themes. So I think that you will definitely enjoy those. Uh, and just some, some of okay. the way that uh, he comes in in the middle of a thunderstorm and shit. It's just intense as fuck. Everything about that movie is intense as fuck. It's actually cool. Uh, so the guy who betrayed him, who sent him to jail at the movie beginning of the movie, he gets pardoned, right? So the guy who framed him, he takes his water bottle and gives it to his son, and he's like, and that's what the what he used the water bottle to frame him at the at after they robbed a thing. So he, they left his water bottle there on purpose. So they're like, oh, it's, he did it. So he hmm. gives the water bottle to the guy's son who betrayed him, and was like, let him know I'm coming and at night and be ready for me so he fucking shows up and just levels an entire town oh shit <laughs> and that's and that's like high plains drifter oh no that's in god said decayed oh god okay it's just very similar in the themes and some of the stuff that goes on because it's like the semi kind of like supernatural uh spaghetti western with gothic stuff going on it's okay it's rad as fuck uh I'll probably i probably believe both of them. it's in that new set from arrow that also has uh, I want to say it has that film Compañeros that I talked about earlier with, uh, no, it has Massacre Time, not Compañeros. Sorry. Uh, that movie also has Franco Nero in it and that movie kicks ass as well. Okay. Yeah. I was Hell just thinking, yeah. do you think that this would be like, I don't, I don't know if you could potentially make this into a film, but a Giallo Western. Yeah. Like you could like do like a Giallo, Ooh. like that type of like mystery in that time period. Yeah. Ooh, that would work. That'd be cool as fuck. <laughs> that would be cool. POV shot with like a gross fucking like knife. It's like like a sickle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's and he's hacking up prostitutes in a saloon. There you go. Yeah. Hey, fucking you heard it here first. 
<laughs> Our first period Don't piece. Idea. Brody, we're getting on it. <laughs> Jello, we're going back in time. Yeah. Hell yeah. Get your fucking flux capacitor out. I was going to say, back to the future part three, here we go. Uh, oh, fuck yeah. Well, thank you guys for joining us on another episode of Lights, Camera, Exploitation. It's been a doozy. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, signing off. This is your doppelganger, Kanga Bang, all the way from down under saying, I'll catch you next week, motherfuckers. Sick Nick saying, I'm about to drink some cough syrup and take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>